But the best thing about being an architecture student having that background is you are way more advanced in terms of the way you can think mm. than pretty much anyone else out there. Business of Architecture, episode 209. Hello, I'm Enoch Sears, and this is the podcast for architects, where you'll discover tips, strategies, and secrets for running a profitable and impactful architecture practice. I'd like to invite you to discover how to double your architecture firm income and create your dream practice of freedom and impact by downloading my free four-part architecture firm profit map. As a podcast listener, you can get instant access by going to freearchitectgift.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software designed specifically for architects. It helps you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. So whether you're working remotely or on-site, ArchiOffice allows you to monitor the status of your projects and tasks and send out invoices in an accurate and timely manner. Get your fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice by going to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. And here's another episode of the Business of Architecture podcast. Hello and welcome Architect Nation to your favorite place to feed your mind with the latest strategies and techniques to increase your income, your impact, and your fulfillment. Today's episode is coming is going to be a guest hosted by my United Kingdom colleague Ryan Willard. He's going to interview. Uh, he's a very interesting interview on the line today. Uh, you're going to hear from Harry Parr, who's one of the principals at Bompus and Parr. And I just have to read the description off their website about what this firm is about because it's a little different than some of the typical interviews we have here on business of architecture, but uh, it will be thoroughly educational, I'm sure. So Bompas and Parr, this is taken right off their about page, Bompas and Parr is globally recognized as the leading expert in multi-sensory experience design. The studio works with commercial brands, artistic institutions, private clients, and governments to deliver emotionally compelling experiences to a wide variety of audiences. Sam Bompas and Harry Parr first came to prominence through their expertise in jelly making, but their business rapidly grew into a fully-fledged creative studio offering food and drink design, brand consultancy, and immersive experiences across a diverse number of industries. The founders' backgrounds in marketing and architecture play a key role in positioning uh, the positioning and nature of the studio's output, and along with a diverse spread of talents among their 20-strong team, Bompus and Par Activations boast a bold, ambition, distinctive aesthetic style, and interpretive vigor that's unrivaled among creative agencies. The studio works to experiment, develop, and produce projects and experiences, as well as provide strategy, analysis, and advice for brands to increase consumer engagement through experience design. Genre-defining projects include a project titled Alcoholic Architecture, an inhabitable cloud of gin and tonic, the world's first multi-sensory fireworks display for London's New Year's Eve 2013, and the taste experience for the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. Bompas and Parr also founded the British Museum of Food, the world's first cultural institution exclusively dedicated to food and drink, 
and has published six books that explore humankind's relationship with food. Well, I certainly know my relationship with food. <laughs> Bompus and Parr works with brands such as Coca-Cola, Johnny Walker, Mercedes, Vodafone, and LVMH, as well as cultural institutions such as the Barbican, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and the Garage Museum of Contemporary Art in Moscow. The studio is based in South London, but in the past year has realized projects on practically every continent. Now, the interesting part about this particular episode is you're going to hear how to take your design thinking as a designer and an architect and how it can be applied to another field very successfully. So we're going to hear from Harry Parr, who started, as, as we mentioned just now, in this little bio of their firm, uh, doing making jelly, which here in the U.S. we generally call that jello, uh, making jelly, and it turned into quite the catering business, moved into events. Anyways, I'll let them tell the entire story. It's it's rather entertaining. Before I do that, however, I do want to head over and I want to thank those of you who left a review on iTunes. People cannot find the podcast unless you leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast uh, to be able to uh, help them get this information that can help them in their business as well as an architect. So thank you to CJ Thomas 6 who says, thank you for the actionable business development information shared here. Looking forward to more. And thank you to Neil B.I.J., who apparently did not enjoy my latest episode on Unlock Your Dormant Potential. Says, not helpful to brought a topic. All right, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that feedback. Always looking to improve the caliber of the interviews here that you listen to on the Business of Architecture. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Its interview is uh, done by Ryan Willard of Thinking Hand Studio, and he is interviewing Harry Parr of the experienced design firm Bompus and Parr. Hello and welcome. It's Ryan Willard here with the Business of Architecture and I'm with Harry Parr, who is the founder of Bompas and Parr. He is a self-proclaimed uh, jelly monger, um, architectural foodsmith, and it's a really quite an amazing story of, of how Harry has kind of created this very unique company um, in the sort of food and entertainment world. Um, and it's a great Privilege to be able to chat with you, Harry. So thank you very much. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Ryan. And I just want to know, like, just to begin with, how did this? How did your company begin? What's the sort of the story? So it started, and you'll probably remember this uh, in what was the the holidays between uh, the first and second year of doing diploma at mm. the Bartlett, and myself and my friend Sam Bompers decided to start a jelly stall. And start a jelly company and we set our sights on getting a stand at borough market yeah which they went ahead and refused straight away they thought it was a ridiculous <laughs> idea uh, but we weren't to be put off so we then started getting into a world of jelly and seeing what we could do with our product and how did you you how are you utilizing your sort of architectural training to move into this world so the initial thing in the early days was jelly molds yeah and sam and i liked the idea of victorian jelly molds and we were then 
somewhat shocked to see that they cost about £300 each. <laughs> so we immediately thought, hang on a minute, how can we have a jelly company? We want nice jelly unmoulded on the plate. How can we serve it for lots of people if we can't get all these moulds? Mm. So at the time, 3D printing was just coming in and I knew lots of uh, 3D CAD stuff. So I liked making models in Rhino. So it was quite easy really just to start printing stuff. I think the Bartlett just had its first um, Z Corp 3D printer so we started printing uh molds as it were and then mm. vacuum forming them and then before we knew it we could have as many molds as we wanted and really wasn't so expensive and you found that there was a like there was a, a sort of a market for that available well in in the initial early days i think we created our own market so i, I guess our first commercial job was probably unpaid and i think was for sam's mum and we served some jelly to some beavers and I think we realised there was beavers and scouts. We realised that they actually preferred the chocolate <laughs> brownies that were on offer and that you had to pay for than the jelly. But actually, very quickly, we realised that people love jelly. And mm. for them, it was something that brought back this idea of nostalgia. Mm. And it was interesting seeing people react to food in a way that we hadn't seen before. So we knew there was something very powerful in jelly. We mm. just didn't know how to harness it quite at that moment. Mm. And it's quite like... I mean, because you, you've obviously you'd gone through all this long education of becoming an architect, so it's quite a courageous move to sort of step out of that quite structured path and move into, you know, quite an adventurous uh, idea. How did you, what, what kind of gave you the confidence to be able to do that? Well, at first it wasn't deliberate. Mm. I think it's actually never been deliberate to step away so while Sam and I were doing the jellies and actually our first real commercial job was a commission by Warwick Castle to create a 12 course Victorian breakfast Mm. which came about when they asked for a jelly but we didn't know how to do this big jelly that they wanted so I started on that project and I actually used that for my architecture diploma for my final piece Um, and through that I was looking at the skills I knew in terms of drawing and so on to how to create this meal. Mm. I was choreographing the wait staff and producing these elaborate plans of how the food would be produced. And then suddenly, I guess I found myself on site just doing it and making it all happen. Mm. Um, but it was very architectural to start with because that's all I knew. Yeah. And then from that, from that one event, it began to grow to larger events. So that was our first commercial job where yeah. we actually got a bit of money and I guess by the end of it maybe we had a couple of thousand pounds in the bank and then we set about going oh well we we have a jelly company and we've always said we can make molds in the shape of anything now we really need to get on and do that Mm. and so Sam entered us for the London Festival of Architecture to have an event and we were going to have this um, architectural jelly banquet and the idea was to invite architects from all around the world to design one of their buildings in jelly. And then I would have to actually make them. <laughs> they would just get to sketch them and I'd have to make them. And that turned out to be a great thing. Not only did we get loads of entries, so we had likes of Lord Foster and Rogers and Will Orsop and so on. Um, but we then, for some crazy reason, sold 2,000 tickets for an event, uh, which was at UCL in the in the quads and we had to then entertain people so we were going from a catering company yeah had only really done one event to now putting on a whole event for a few thousand people mm. 
Amazing. And clearly you've obviously got like a, where did you learn that you're sort of, or get in contact with that kind of entrepreneurial flair to be able to, you know, because there's so many architectural students who will end up just doing projects when they're just kind of in their own, you know, it's just them really. And it's just kind of intense drawing. And here you are as a student and you've kind of enlisted, you're building a team, you're building a small, a small company already just in, in the, in the one project. Where did that kind of spirit come from? Is it something you've always been doing? You've always been entrepreneurially minded like that or was it just kind of out of I've always been interested in running a company Mm. uh, but I guess there's no way that I thought it would end up being like it is now and actually I think I remember when I started architecture and I was doing my degree I said to someone probably quite nonchalantly that I wanted to have a company where I, I was the architect and there would be a PR person and then a lawyer mm. and it's kind of what I've ended up with uh, to some extent but it's obviously not quite in in architecture yeah um, but I really enjoy working with Sam because his skill set is so different from mine and I, I think that's where architects perhaps go wrong is that they team up with other architects mm. who funnily enough share very similar skill sets and Sam and I have really no skill sets in common other than we like doing a good job and can be bothered to push through uh, to the end and what are his what are his skill sets compared to yours so best way of describing it is that when we're cooking a meal i i'm in the kitchen cooking and he's front of house um, serving so on larger projects that means i'm doing financial things and overseeing production and doing design overseeing the design team mm. but he'll be doing those other things that are really important client management uh, the PR and the image of it and telling a good story for people coming along. Got it. And how important has that has that been in terms of, you know, your your sort of uh, relationship with the media? And can you tell us a little bit about the sort of strategies that you've employed to kind of grow the way you have? Well, the, the strategy is fairly simple. It's making sure that everything that we do is interesting to yeah. someone uh, and so therefore it's naturally newsworthy and that can be in quite crude terms like making it a world uh, first but it can be in other ways as well and ultimately we need to create events um, where people come along to and that they want to tell their friends about it in the pub and say oh you never guess what happened to me when I went along to this thing um, so like giving them stories to tell and then that can translate across to the media as well and get them excited about something new. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of some of the most successful ones that you've that you've done? Uh, I think in terms of press, uh, one of my favourite projects is building a boating lake on the roof of Selfridges. Mm. And so that was a huge structural challenge and we had to reinforce uh, the roof and put it's about 70 tons of steel went on the roof and we couldn't use cranes so it was all hand board up and it was in small uh, sections so just really crazy but of course from a press side like no one cares about that so Mm. sam did a really good job of working with the designer faye too good to make sure that when people saw the lake it had something that was totally different so it was bright green and had this amazing um pattern and landscape created around it so it was all the details were there and it allows something that was technically very challenging to be uh, appreciated by people yeah amazing yeah and and as you say like you've always there's always been like a strong sense of narrative in all of your all of your projects and events and i know that uh i mean i've often ended up 
like like you say, you get people. There's a real mastery of how you're able to get people talking about you. And then I've kind of often had conversations with people, and they're like, "Oh, I saw this thing with like the alcoholic mystery room or something." And you're like, "Ah, oh, that sounds like one of Harry's projects." And that's obviously grown into kind of like, you know, quite a niche market. Is there anybody else doing anything like this, or is this something that you've really kind of created yourselves as being like, you know, this is your your territory? Yeah, I think now there are lots of people doing similar sorts of things, but we've been doing it for longer. Mm. than anyone else and are more experienced and have a much larger team so we're much more prolific and we produce um, well in excess of 150 events every year so there's a lot going on in the studio all the time wow and how big is the team now so the team is 22 and what does they what does that comprise of what are they made out of in terms of like professions and disciplines yeah so there's uh, three main teams one's uh, called events which does event production and also the design team sits within that and catering as well so within events you have design production and catering Mm. and then there's content team which is more working for our clients where we do consultancy and they also do more 2d output as well so might be creating films um, or creating press images or putting booklets and written material together updating the websites that sort of thing. Uh, and then there's a studio management side where finance and HR sits. And how and how do you acquire clients? How how is that kind of people just you just now in a you because you're kind of the, the the go-to people that people just tend to come to you or is there have you ever had strategies where you've kind of gone off specific, you know, gone after specific types of clients or yeah, lots of clients come through word of mouth or they've just heard of our reputation and they think they have a certain project that would suit us but we've worked with so many different people that there are all sorts of connections Mm. out there and stuff just seems to come in and yes we do specifically go after certain people and for us it's it's one thing to have lots of clients come to you but you need to get the right clients and the clients that you can build a longer term relationship with because it's quite tiring having to have a new client on every project yeah because as the business expands, you realize how important it is to have very strong client relationships where you can trust one another and know uh, how to how to serve them and vice versa. And what's been the most important in, in nurturing those types of relationships? Well, the most important thing is having good client managers, actually. So people who have the time to speak to the clients and listen to them. So it can't all be done with just a team of designers or chefs or technicians. You actually need people whose job it is to just pick up the phone and talk to the clients. And over the last sort of 10 years, what would you say has been the most sort of, you know, the biggest obstacles that you've overcome and that you're most proud of in terms of, you know, growing growing the company to where it is now? Well, we've always uh, sort of moved and grown organically so mm. we've never taken any investment in from anywhere and it's always been I think the challenge has always been employing people and finding the right people and having the right internal structure so you've, you've never you've grown the company without any investment at all it's all been sort yeah. of just based off the your project Every, everything's project just income. been put back in to the company yeah. we don't, at the moment we don't actively invest in anything really uh, we're just growing slowly organically 
as as the need arises and we take punts occasionally on things and get in new new team members when we think the work's going to allow it mm. and you were saying um beforehand like you know you you think it's you, you kind of cottoned on pretty quickly that actually there's a lot better ways to get paid than purely being paid by you know by the hour by being paid for design services how did you start to expand your business model beyond that of just selling you know design consultancy services to brands for you know for food promotion etc yeah so initially I suppose it was the opposite of that because we weren't being paid a fee anyway so <laughs> we were just providing a service like jelly uh, and then you realize actually you could provide the service and get a fee out of it as well for doing the design and management of it and so on and then you've got a product as well like you know you can sell online with the with the molds and yes well th- there are a few products but they're not really part of the business right strategy um so actually the way we structure things now is weeds agree a fee with a client um which might change depending on how their needs change and then we'd have a production budget as well and in that production budget, it's a bit like acting as a main contractor. Mm. We then get to control a whole lump sum of money. And then we employ a series of subcontractors to deliver certain aspects of it. Or we produce some in-house. Right. Okay. So you're outsourcing a lot of stuff as well? Or is it... Yeah. So a huge amount of things are outsourced because we don't have the team here to produce everything that we need. Um, so whether it's extra freelance producers on certain projects or whole set building teams um all, all sorts of things outsource it can't be done in-house and so you guys were quite happy to take on that additional risk as the sort of the sort of prof- profitability of that seemed yeah absolutely wiser. so if you if you get it wrong then it's not great but yeah pretty pretty soon i, I suppose historically we wouldn't make much profit from it so we didn't realize that you could mm. uh, and then more recently with actually better budget management you realize you can and should make a profit from doing that whole side of it brilliant and you were saying that you're you're now collaborating with westfields yeah so fun. we're doing we're doing a number of projects at westfields um, yeah so we're about to go into we, ha- we have our second up at the moment about to go into construction of our third uh, project which will be at westfield london uh, later in august and that's building a, a zip line in the main atrium. So we're building a tree house, big fake tree um, with a zip line going down to the forest floor below. Brilliant. And what? who's that for? That's this, just, just for the mall itself? So that's for Westfield right, itself okay. and Westfield. It's not for a clients. particular client. It's not for a brand, no. Excellent. Amazing. And and with with kind of taking on that additional risk as the contractors, do you also have started, you know, what other kind of, business assets have you been building or developing so in in terms of business assets um we're fairly we're fairly loose we don't have that many we have lots of skills our main asset Mm. is our staff and knowledge Mm. um we have we have one or two other things now so we're more interested in product development and looking at products and how we can grow that stream Um, we've recently bought a holiday house for staff in margate which is overlooking the sea very nice it's quite fun it's a regency disused regency house on top of an arcade um so we're going to be fitting that out shortly um but there's all sorts of things we can do in the future as well and how have you kind of uh you know developed your company 
culture because obviously it's quite you know it's quite clear as soon as you get here it's a very unique place and you've got to be finding the kind of you know the right types of people how have you kind of cultivated that with your staff to kind of ensure that they stick around and how do you how do you sort of um enroll them into your your vision of where you're going and well so every new staff member who starts gets an induction um by sam and there's a whole document that i put together about the company ethos mm. and what we stand for and how we do work um and it's just something you have to reinforce all the time and yes it's going to be much harder to work here than at other places but that's because we do better work and mm. we actually bother and we don't just take the easiest route so if you want to do creative work then it's going to be hard work and do you find that often you might have you know people coming in from different disciplines who are not you know this is quite a unique environment so there's a bit of a sort of tough learning curve yeah there's a very steep learning curve because most jobs that people do are relatively formulaic or they run at a pace where you can pick it up as you go <laughs> along, but you just can't hear because the pace of projects is so fast that you have to know what's going on all the time and what's expected. What's the, the standard's of, very high. What's the sort of typical turnaround of a project that you might... Uh, I mean, our last big project for Westfield turned around in seven weeks from uh, when we received the brief. Mm. And then it was effectively six weeks from when we got commissioned. And that was creating a whole... Um, immersive bar environment in, inside one of the shops there where we flooded it, built a grotto that you could boat through with a waterfall then created a cave covered in shells where there was a bar inside where mermen were swimming around. So <laughs> quite heavy production in six weeks. Uh, that's fantastic. Amazing. And what's what's next? What's the kind of, how do you see, how do you, you want to be growing your, growing the business from now? So we're, Doing uh, more work abroad yeah. than ever. And we, we have historically done a lot of work abroad, but now... Gosh, how do you manage that? Then? As much as 50% of our turnover is probably from uh, work abroad. And actually work abroad is quite nice because it's, it's easier in many ways because you have to have partners that you can truly rely on. Mm. Um, so it, it seems a bit easier to, to some extent, but we're looking to expand that as well and do larger events abroad. And how do you develop those relationships abroad? Like how do you, you know, if you end up getting a commission for something, then obviously finding the, the team of, you know, people who are actually going to build the build the installations. How do you go about doing that? That sounds Well, a lot of it's just word of mouth and you can find the right people. And sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't, but you learn as you go along. And I think the 10 years of experience of having similar challenges. When when we started out in the industry, we didn't know mm. anyone. And we certainly didn't even know what industry we were in. So that didn't particularly <laughs> help. Um, but then after a while, you get to know what who, who's good. Uh, we've worked with lots of people. You get to see lots of familiar faces time and time mm. again. So I'm sure it's fairly similar. But we can bring all sorts of uh, resource out from the UK to uh, foreign places as well. Right. And have you got like a kind of a quite a tight, sort of book of a manual of systems that you kind of apply to each project to ensure your you know your standards of quality are always yeah. you know so we have design kind of we have design systems but there's something we're going to expand on as the team expands and be more uh def well define I, I guess much more tightly what 
has to happen. Because mm. all the events, although they're very different, they actually do follow one structure. Right, okay. And we know that if certain things are missing, we have checklists, then the event is probably not going to work. And are there projects that you kind of, you know, someone might come to you and you're like, actually, no way, that's not going to work for us. Um, sometimes we normally try and persuade them to do something else. <laughs> yeah, often the client doesn't really know mm. what they want. So part of our job is to try and tell them. Help them understand and kind of develop their own. Yeah, because we do, we do more events than a lot of our clients commission. So we have a greater understanding of part of it. And what what kind of advice would you give to architects or design students wanting to set up on their own and do their own do their own thing? Because I, I mean, I always had you know my admiration for what you guys are doing is that you've really taken like you're not doing architecture, but you're still using kind of that architectural thinking and applying it to something else. And actually, I kind of think that a lot of people who go through architectural school would do would do better if they didn't go into an architectural practice and actually followed, you know, a kind of just a hunch or an intuition about, you know, actually I can I can do something different here. What kind of advice would you give to people who are, you know, going through that that design education and they want to set up their own business but don't want to do an, a typical architectural practice? Yeah, I think it's working working out what your connection to the real world is and it's really helpful to have a niche interest. Mm. And there are so many things in the world. It's what, it's what I love actually, particularly about England, is that you can always find someone uh, who's got a really, really specialised skill. So the other day for an event, we, need, we needed some aprons uh, made. We need 250 aprons made with a week's notice. And these aprons <laughs> weren't just like cooking aprons, but they were based on Masonic aprons that had like tassels and funny pockets and all sorts and weird materials. And lo and behold, uh, within <laughs> within a few hours, we'd found three manufacturers who just make Masonic uh, aprons and were, were able to turn around the order Amazing. really quickly. But where Sam and I starting in jelly, mm. then that actually became our calling card to go all the way around the world yeah. making jelly. So if you've got something that you're really into, like make that your thing and don't worry about the rest because once you've got that nailed and you learn lots of business skills and that, then you can twist that and go in any direction that you want. What would you say are the sort of the key ingredients for running a successful practice or a successful design company? Uh, well, you need to do more work than other people. That's yeah. the first one. So hard work and not giving up. Uh, and then just don't give up when the sh all the shit things happen. Because they will happen all the time. And actually, the bigger the business gets, like the bigger the problems <laughs> become. So if you just succumb to them, then yeah. you'd, you'd um, it'd be over very, very quickly. And you, you were saying that you're, you're involved uh, teaching at the Bartlett at the moment? Yes, yeah, so I'm doing various bits of teaching on an ad hoc basis there. And actually, part of it is teaching normally third years yeah about how they can be more entrepreneurial mm. and i do actually find that maybe the way that people are conditioned the architects are conditioned that they do seem to turn their nose up a bit at the thought that they could do they could make fame and fortune by doing anything other than architecture mm. um, but uh, it's just impossible you cannot go um you can't finish your diploma now 
and expect to get a job as an architect and be successful. Yeah. Just through that, you just can't. You need to do something else. Like that opportunity is long since gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I totally, totally agree with you there. I think there's a, it's um, really, really important that uh, design students are kind of looking at, you know, applying that creativity to a world of business, being an entrepreneur, all the different ways, from, yeah. you know, making products to selling services to, you know, building assets, whether it's in property development to business assets, information. But the best thing about being an architecture student is having that background is you are way more advanced in terms of the way you can think mm. than pretty much anyone else out there. Um, now, it's going to be in a, in a fairly niche but broad area, as it were. But mm. if you can turn those skills that you have to something else and think quite laterally about it then that's going to put you at a huge advantage yeah and obviously i kind of think the you know the strategic skills you have as an architect being able to sort of step back and see the bigger picture is very powerful for kind of looking and designing designing a business yeah absolutely and i i think it's one thing where like details are really fascinating, just details in buildings. So architects often spend lots of time doing details, but when you go and the average person doesn't notice details, but they will notice how they were greeted at the reception and how the person was dressed and what the music was and uh, whether it was a nice day or not. And that will all change their mood. And mm. by dint, that will change their impression of the architecture and so design is one thing kind of conventional architecture design but you really need to start designing whole environments and actually from an architecture point of view if you're an architect you can't control everything yeah so why not get into something where you can start controlling more things and have a bigger impact mm. and how would you how do you think that like architectural education can respond to this or start teaching entrepreneurship do you think entrepreneurship is something that can be taught or is it only something that you can kind of learn by doing it and making the mistakes well i think one of the issues perhaps is that the architect is seen from the industry as being the person in control and in charge of everything and that mm. sort of godlike where you know what's going on but then as soon as you become a slightly more experienced architect you realize that actually it's the clients and contractors who are really calling the shots and there's not necessarily so much you can do you know depending this is the majority of of cases um mm. so it's it's what is it i think the education needs to show people that they need to have a greater impact across a wider range of things if, if you actually want to deliver really great architecture you can't just do the design. You need to be involved in commissioning and contracting and all sorts of other things that actually make a building. Mm, yeah. And just, yeah, understanding how to scale up and how to yeah. kind of not be involved in just, yeah, just doing drawings. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Oh, Harry. Thank you. Really, really, great, great to talk to you. Really, really fascinating. And, yeah, you know, congratulations on, on everything. Very inspiring. Yeah. And that is a wrap. Thank you for listening today. If you're looking for more time, freedom, impact, and income as an architect, get instant access to my free four-part architect profit map by visiting freearchitectgift.com. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software designed specifically for architects. It helps you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. So whether you're working remotely or on-site, ArchiOffice allows you to monitor the status of your projects and tasks and send out invoices in an accurate and timely manner. Get your fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice by going to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. The views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host, and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment except to help you conquer the world.